The scripture reading for this morning is from 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20 through 25. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're returning this morning to our series, uh, Why Sunday Morning Matters. Let me just give us a a quick recap here. The first week, uh, we asked the question, what is worship? And we defined it as our response of adoration and devotion to the revelation of the glory of God. And we talked about how worship can be thought of not only in terms of revelation and response, but also in terms of lips and lives. It's our singing and our living. Uh, In terms of public and private, private worship and gathered public worship here. And then also that worship is to be centered on Christ. Then we consider the fact that God is more glorified when we worship him together than when we worship him in private. We looked at Psalm 87. Psalm 87, which says, the Lord loves the gates of Zion. So that place where his people are gathered was a specific place in the Old Testament era. It is wherever God's people are gathered in a place today that God is more glorified, that God loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. So all the households of Jacob, all the households of his people, where it was assumed that God would be worshipped as well, and yet God loves the gates of Zion. I said then, and let me remind us now, it's not that God doesn't value private worship or that God doesn't value household worship. He very much does. He commands it. We see it in places like Deuteronomy chapter 6. He delights in it. But God is in a way more glorified when his people gather together to worship him. The example we gave is uh, Handel's Messiah. Imagine that all the instrumentalists and all the vocalists, when they uh, sing and perform the Hallelujah Chorus, are all believers. All right? So an individual instrumentalist, an individual vocalist, when he or she is alone practicing their part, may, you know, practice their part and think, oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God, glory to God. But how much more when all of the orchestra and all of the chorus comes together to praise God together? We then looked at how God is more fully present with us when we are gathered for worship. We are his temple. His spirit dwells among us. This is what we see in in 1 Peter chapter 2, for instance. We are, yes, all individually those who are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians, the, the book we're looking at this morning. 
But we are also all collectively the temple, the household of God, a a life-on-life temple being built up in which his spirit dwells. God is present with us here through the preaching of the word and through the right observance of the sacraments in a way that he's not with us when we are worshiping alone. And I made the distinction then, and I want to make the distinction again now that we are not talking about an either-or scenario. We're talking about an if-then scenario. It is not as though you are either here glorifying God or you're not glorifying God at all. It's not as though you are either here experiencing something of his presence or you're not experiencing his presence at all. It's not either-or, it's if-then. If it is true that as individuals and in households, we can glorify God and experience something of his presence. If we can worship God, then how much more so when we are gathered together? Two weeks ago, we considered what the Bible has to say about how we are best built up together on Sunday morning. We looked at Hebrews 10 in that passage that commands us not to neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. That's what the author of Hebrews says there in Hebrews chapter 10. And we made the distinction then between not meeting out of necessity and not meeting out of neglect, as the author of Hebrews says. For a season, I can't remember how many months now, between March and July of 2020, we did not meet out of necessity. And there are some who are not with us now. They're worshiping via the live stream. They are not here out of necessity. That is something different than falling into the habit of not meeting due to neglect. We need one another in worship. We need to encourage one another to love and good works. That's what Hebrews 10 is saying. And we need that encouragement even here when we're gathered together. I was, I was putting this in practice a little bit this morning. I, you know, you come here, and maybe you do this, I certainly have. You know, when I am singing in worship, I'm, it's not that I'm not listening to people around me, but I'm very much just thinking about, you know, me and my heart and singing before God. I think that one of the ways that we're meant to encourage and be encouraged by one another is simply by listening to other people singing around us. Listening to other people who are you know, speaking the words of confession or the words of assurance. We're encouraged as we hear that. Even that is a way of bringing encouragement to us. Uh, now, the message of all four of those sermons leading up to today all bear, you know, influence. They, they have an impact for what we're talking about this morning from this passage in 1 Corinthians 14, and that has to do with the impact of public worship when it comes to outreach, when it comes to reaching unbelievers, rightly defining and practicing worship, pursuing God's glory in worship, desiring his presence in worship, and seeking to build each other up in worship, all play a role in the impact public worship can have on unbelievers who Paul anticipates, expects, will be present when we gather for worship. Paul's burden in 1 Corinthians 14, the chapter as a whole, not just the section that we 
read and that we're gonna look at this morning. Paul's burden is to help us understand that when believers come together to worship God with a burden to build others up with the truth of God, unbelievers who are with us may come to worship God as they see that God is really among us. That's the message of 1 Corinthians 14. Conversely, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, if we come to worship primarily for what we can get out of it, primarily in self-serving ways, devoid of clarity and devoid of love, then unbelievers may turn from their only hope of salvation because they see nothing of the reality of Christ in church. This is weighty stuff that we're talking about this morning. Either way, what the text is telling us about the role Sunday morning plays when it comes to reaching the lost is this, that Christ-exalting, truth-declaring, love-pursuing worship is a powerful means that God uses to rescue people from their sin. Christ-exalting, truth-declaring, love-pursuing worship is a powerful means that God uses to rescue people from their sin. So there's three observations that we're gonna make from the text this morning. The first has to do with unbelievers, and that's this, I mentioned it already, Paul expects them to be here. Paul expects that unbelievers will be present in worship. The second thing has to do with believers, and that's this, this, this passage, this chapter as a whole is telling us that we must be more concerned about what we can give than what we can get when it comes to Sunday morning. And then the third observation has to do with God. And that's this, that God is with us and he wants to be known in worship. He is Emmanuel, Jesus Christ with us in the incarnation, God with us now by his spirit, wanting to be known. So three observations, unbelievers expected to be present, believers more eager to give than to get, and that God is with us and wants to be known. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would be with us now. We're thankful that you are, thankful that your word is living and active. We're thankful that your spirit is active in us and among us. And we pray, Lord, that you would connect the dots, if you will, that you would do, as this passage says, Lay bare our hearts. Help us to see, O oh God, that you are real. Help us to grow, those of us who profess faith in Christ and our love for you and for one another. And for those who are here who may not yet know you, O oh God, may this be the day that through these ordinary things that your people do every Sunday, that you reveal yourself, that people might put their trust in you for their salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so unbelievers are expected to be present in worship. That's what Paul is telling us. Now, before we think, well, but it must have been easy then, right? I mean, Paul didn't understand what we're facing in our culture today. Well, let's think about what Paul was dealing with in Corinth. All right, 1 Corinthians written to the church in Corinth. What can we say about Corinth? Well, first, Corinth was a very cosmopolitan city. Where Corinth was located was on a thin strip of land in Greece that had, uh, you know, harbors on either side. So literally at the narrowest point, it was six miles 
between one harbor and another. On one side of that little strip of land, on one side of Corinth, you know, you faced Asia and Ephesus, and so major opportunity for trade in that direction. On the other side, just six miles across, there was a port, and from that port, you faced Italy and, and ultimately Rome, the center of the Roman Empire. And so Corinth became a very, very much a prime location for both east-west and north-south trade. Merchants, ship owners, sailors did not want to have to go around the southern tip of Greece to have that east-west trade happen. They really, really liked that little six-mile strip of land. <laughs> now, the, the Romans would later try to build a canal. It didn't work. They, eventually, there was a canal built there. There's still a canal there. But in the first century, what they did was build a, a paved road to connect the two harbors, and the lighter ships they would actually put on rollers and bring across that six-mile road from one harbor to the next. And guess what? We know what that can look like when you get on the throughway. <laughs> there are tolls to be paid. And they, they, so the people in Corinth made a ton of money. The ships didn't want to go around, the sailors, etc., both because that added six days to the journey, but also because there were some really strong you know, headwinds. It was really dangerous. There were you know, waves and breakers and stuff that would be bad. So Corinth got wealthy by charging fees to get ships from one harbor to the other. With that, you know, came a, a lot of uh, international flavor. You know, there are people coming from various places to Corinth. Um, it was kind of a tourist hub, if you could imagine that. So a very cosmopolitan city. It was a very competitive city. There were, I think, maybe because of the trade, perhaps, um, and the, the opportunity to reach distant lands, a lot of entrepreneurs in Corinth, a lot of business startups. It was an incubator, if you will. People came, you know, if Frank Sinatra were alive then, it would be Corinth, not New York City, where if you could make it there, you'd make it anywhere. All right? There were also, in Corinth, the Isthmian Games. Now, think Olympics. You know, I always think of, you know, like the Pan American Games today. They're like the Olympics, light. The Isthmian Games were kind of like that. You know, they weren't quite as big as the Olympic Games, but they were big. And people came from all over to compete in the Isthmian Games. So there was this real competitive spirit, cosmopolitan, kind of a world city. Honestly, the world city of its age, even more so than Athens. Athens' golden age was kind of past. So a world city, a highly competitive city, people went there to win. Whether it was athletics or business, they went there to be winners, and losers got left behind. Corinth was a very progressive city. One of the things that made it progressive was the fact that in the Isthmian Games, unlike in the Olympic Games, women were permitted to participate and compete. That was brand new in Corinth. Corinth was also a very pluralistic city. Every deity had a temple. Very pluralistic, very polytheistic. Christianity would, Christians would be persecuted because of its monotheism, because of the fact that it claimed to be the only way to God. So not just monotheistic, but the only way to God. When it came to, you know, rhetoric, because rhetoric mattered in uh, ancient Greece, so what we might call, you know, preaching, public speaking today. When it came to rhetoric, high polish and large crowds 
would bring wealthy patrons so that the speaker didn't have to work for a living. He could just kind of travel, you know, sharing his message. And if all those things lined up, high polish, you know, really strong rhetorical skills, large crowds, lots of people wanting to hear what he was saying, wealthy patrons saying, I'll support you, then that person had a message that was worth listening to. The proof was in the pudding. That was Corinth. Now, how did Paul reach Corinth? He tells us in 1 Corinthians. He tells us in the early chapters that he came with much fear and trembling, with plain speech. We also learned that he worked as a tent maker. He worked with his hands. So his intentional approach when it came to reaching Corinth was to use plain speech and manual labor. To not seek to have a patron who could support him and not seek to impress with whatever rhetorical skills he may or may not have had. Plain speech. Working with his hands. You know, what we would call uh, bivocational ministry. How, what did he emphasize? He didn't talk about winning. He talked about weakness. He didn't emphasize self-promotion, which was the name of the game in Corinth. He emphasized sacrificial love. His message, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, was Christ and him crucified, which he acknowledged was a stumbling block to Jews, and there were Jews in Corinth, and folly to the Gentiles who were in Corinth. That was, that was how the church began in Corinth. How did the church grow? Well, it's it's well-established from church history that the church grew in the first century as everyday Christians served their neighbors, sometimes in very sacrificial ways, and gossiped the gospel. Gossiped the gospel, that's John Stott's term. Just talked about Jesus in their everyday life, whether it was at work or whether it was in the marketplace or with you know, neighbors, they gossiped the gospel and they served those around them. Spiritual conversations that led to church invitations, such that unbelievers were anticipated, expected, and likely Paul's writing because they already had been present in worship. So the question that I have for you this morning is, do we need a different strategy for reaching the lost today? I mean, the church in America has tried. You know, we kind of shifted to what could be called a highly attractional, something that would kind of match the high polish of the, of the speakers in the day of uh, Paul and Corinth. You know, what does Paul tell us in verses 24 and 25 will bring a non-believer to their, you know, fall on his face and have the secrets of his heart disclosed? It's, it's clear articulation of the truth and believers who have pursued gifts that build each other up out of love. That's what it is. It's not high polish when it comes to preaching. It's not attractional worship. It's not cutting-edge technology. It's not seamless transitions between elements of the service. None of these things are unimportant. And they all can be, you know, means of, you know, at a minimum, eliminating distractions and in a positive sense, aiding in some way in, in worship. However, let us never forget that what was true then is just as much true now. It's 
everyday believers, knowing, serving their neighbors, gossiping the gospel, engaging in spiritual conversations, inviting them to church where God uses ordinary things like the preaching of his word, the singing of his saints, the observance of the sacraments, and Christians demonstrating love to one another, often in speech, that God has built up his church and that God has used to rescue people from their sins. Now, at one level, that is so liberating, isn't it? We don't have to try to keep pace with you know, other churches and other places that are trying to do things that in and of themselves aren't bad, but aren't ultimately what God uses to draw people to himself. It was expected that unbelievers would be present in worship. If they were there in Corinth, they were there because Christians had invited them and the same will be true today. Now, the good news is this. A Barna survey of non-Christians in 2014 found that nearly 50% of those surveyed said they were willing to consider, seriously willing to consider attending church if someone they knew who was a believer invited them. And out of all the different you know, pro, you know, ways of being, that were proposed, like if, if this happened, if this happened, if you got a flyer in the mail, if you got a cold call from the pastor, Right? I mean, all these different ways, the one that hit the highest was if somebody I know invites me to church, I will seriously consider going to church with that friend, 50%. The bad news is that a LifeWay survey of Christians in 2018 found that nearly 50% in the Northeast had not invited anyone to church in the last six months. The single most effective strategy for getting people, non-Christians, to come to church is Christians inviting them to church. And yet nearly half of us in the Northeast have not invited anyone to church, at least in that survey in the past six months. Now, we each need to wrestle with why and be challenged by that. But recognize this, unbelievers are expected to be present in worship, and if they are present with us today, it is most likely because you have invited them. Second, believers must be more eager to give than to get. Now, Paul, in chapter 13, through really the end of chapter 14, is talking about the primacy of love. Chapter 13 is the love chapter. You're familiar with it, perhaps. If not, go back and read it. He says right in 13, verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy, noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So he's talking about you know, kind of love in general in chapter 13. In chapter 14, notice that he immediately goes into what it looks like to be those who pursue love in the context of gathered public worship. So 14.1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Worship looks like pursuing spiritual gifts out of a desire to demonstrate love. Let me read uh, the next few verses in chapter 14. Uh, verse 2, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. 
On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So Paul is saying, I want you, I've, I've told you all about what love looks like in the heart of a Christian. I'm commanding you now in chapter 14, verse 1, to pursue love. And as we transition into what it looks like for us to be a gathered church, Paul is saying, is, uh, saying here, out of your pursuit of love, eagerly desire and pursue the gifts of the Spirit that lead to the building up of the church and not those that lead to the building up of yourself. So there's the principle. Christians are called to be more concerned about what they can give than what they can get when it comes to public worship out of love. Love for God, love for others. Now, you know, I can't ignore the fact that he talks about tongues and he talks about prophecy in this passage. And I'm going to just touch on it a little bit. When he talks about tongues, how can we think about tongues? Tongues... Prayer in a language that the speaker doesn't know. Just looking at 1 Corinthians 14 and, and defining it in simplest terms. Prayer in a language that the speaker doesn't know. Acts chapter 2 would indicate that that language is some other known language. There are others who heard the, those in the upper room saying things in their own language. But what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 here when he talks about um, uttering mysteries in the spirit, that could lead to thinking that it's a language that doesn't exist. It's some kind of a spiritual language, if you will. What about tongues today? Some of us come from churches or come from backgrounds where it was expected that if you were a Christian, you would speak in tongues. That if you were, you know, if you were really filled with the spirit, you would speak in tongues. That's nowhere in scripture. That idea is to be rejected. It has brought much hurt and harm to people. To say that you're a second-class citizen unless you've spoken in tongues. It's tragic. It's part of my story. It's part of one of the churches I grew up in. However, there are some Bible-believing Christians who believe that this gift does continue in some way, especially some would say, on the missionary frontier where the word of God has not been preached and the message of the missionary is being confirmed or attested to by a demonstration of the Spirit's power through speaking in tongues. There are some Bible-believing Christians. Don't go to the extreme of saying every Christian ought to do it, and if you do it, that means you're a real Christian. Reject that, but still say in some way this gift carries on. They are continuationists. Others are cessationists. They would say, no, this gift was very specific to the apostolic era when the apostles were preaching. The gifts of tongue speaking was a way of confirming the message of the apostles, but now that we have the Bible, that gift is no longer needed. They are cessationists. And so both of these are you know, positions that people would look to Scripture and, and make a case from Scripture for that. The, the other thing, of course, is there's primarily between the person praying and God. And so Paul is emphasizing in this passage, listen, I'd rather you speak words that can be understood so that other people can be built up than pray to God in a way that builds yourself up, but unless it's interpreted, it's of no value to anybody around you. So that's tongues, prophecy, prophecy, speech that reports something that God has brought to mind. 
So someone could stand up and say, God has laid it on my heart. I feel like God is saying, I need to say this to you, brother, or to you, sister. Now, even in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Thessalonians 5 also as well, it was clear that this was not infallible speech. These people that were exercising this gift of prophecy, their words still had to be tested because they could be wrong. They had to be measured against what the infallible word of Scripture said. But the thing that made that gift preferable for Paul was that it was actually something that would build up others around them in worship. So that Paul would say, I, I would rather speak five intelligible words when I'm in church with you than 10,000 words in a tongue. Because Paul's burden was that the church be built up. Now, what's the point? The point is this, and you see it in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. He's correcting them because, and the issue then was tongues, but the principle was this. He's correcting them, calling them immature children because they were coming to worship only seeking to build themselves up and not thinking at all about what, it would need, what needs to happen in terms of building others up. He said, pursue love. Out of your pursuit of love, eagerly desire gifts that build other people up. And to not do that, he says, is actually childish. In verse 20, mature Christians are more concerned about what they can give than what they will get when it comes to public worship. That's what Paul's told us in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, why does this matter when it comes to unbelievers? Well, that's what we see in verses 21 through 24. So let me unpack that for us real quick. Verse 21, Paul says, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now he's referring to Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. In Isaiah 28, God is prophesying, he's speaking through Isaiah, and he's saying of the unbelieving Israelites, of his people, but unbelieving Israelites, God is going to use the Assyrian army to bring God's judgment upon them. And the Assyrian army is going to speak words in their language that the Israelites don't understand. But that speech in a different language from, an, you know, from a conquering army will itself be a sign, a negative sign, to the unbelieving Israelites that God is judging them. So that's what's happening with that reference in verse 21. Verse 22, Paul applies the principle from verse 21. Thus tongues are a sign for believers, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. So building on the negative sign of a foreign or unknown language for unbelieving Israel, Paul is saying an unknown language for an unbelieving person can be a negative sign of God's judgment. Now, he'll explain why in the end of this passage, and we'll get there in a minute. Verse 22 also says that prophecy is a sign for believers. It's a positive sign that God is blessing. His truth is being proclaimed. His people are being built up. 
Verses 23 through 25 then spell out the implications. Verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? And so tongues, the unknown language, can become a negative sign to the unbelievers who are present because they don't understand what is being said and say to the people who are there, you're out of your minds, they walk away, and in so doing, they reject the only God who can save them. But then in verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called, called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed and falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So on the other hand, if the positive sign is being employed, if people are speaking the truth of God in love to one another and are building each other up, then unbelievers who are present can see and hear that, and that can become for them a positive sign of God's blessing, such that they put their faith in God and believe. Why does that all matter for us today? Paul was calling that church, and he's calling the church in every way, in every age, to proclaim the truth clearly and to demonstrate love counterculturally. To proclaim the truth clearly. That's the whole point of the distinction between prophecy and tongues. But again, this is embedded in a call to pursue love, a call given to a people who were coming out of a culture that was all about self, all about winning, all about self-aggrandizement, all about pushing others down to build yourselves up. That carried over. Paul had to deal with that in 1 Corinthians. In the passage in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, he's, he's after them because some of them are in, you know, kind of, kind of a portico. There, there are archaeological evidence that there were in uh, Greek homes kind of a, a gathering area where you know, people would dine and then kind of an atrium. That was kind of a passageway in. And what Paul is saying is you know, some of you are having your, your feast together and observing the Lord's Supper in the large room but you're leaving the less wealthy, the less polished, the less powerful out there in the atrium to do it out there by themselves. So that spirit of self-centeredness, of self-aggrandizement, of competitiveness, of winning, and of pushing together or pushing away those who you know, didn't quite um, match, you know, didn't quite measure up, that had carried over. And Paul is saying, no, in worship, you must be all about loving others, building up others, and the truth about God must be clearly proclaimed. The thing that brings people to their knees in worship is the truth of God proclaimed among believers who love one another. Can I say that again? The thing that brings people to their knees in worship is the truth of God proclaimed among believers who love one another. It really is that simple, though you know it's not easy. Third, God is with us in worship and he wants to be known. That's, that's the clear inference from this entire passage. But verse 25, he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. God is among his people. He's among us when we worship him. He wants to be known. He wants to be known by unbelievers who are present so that unbelievers can see and declare, yes, God is really among you. 
If that is so for non-believers, how much more is it true for his children? He wants to be known by us when we gather together here. This idea of the secrets of the heart being laid bare, such that we see the emptiness of sin and, 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 the, and the, you know, the, the uselessness of the things that we tend to pursue. Having that exposed, that's not a one-off thing. That's something that we, you know, if we're open to, it can happen every week. Such that we can see that there's a God who is good and gracious, who, who is better than anything this world has to offer. That we might worship him and declare that he is still among us. God does this through ordinary things like what we're doing today. I've referenced the, uh, the sermon, the Puritan sermon from the 1700s by David Clarkson. I want to read this quote. He's talking about church. Here the Lord works his greatest works, though the commonness of them makes them seem less wonderful. Just, I'm going to stop there. Here the Lord works his greatest works, though the commonness of them makes them seem less wonderful. Here the Lord speaks life unto dry bones and raises dead souls out of the grave. Let me pause there for a second. I have a little plaque on this pulpit. Welcome to come up and look at it sometime, just not right now. The plaque, I put this here a couple years ago. The plaque says, preach to the bones, pray for the wind. Preach to the bones, pray from the wind. It's from Ezekiel chapter 37. Not saying you're a bunch of bones. But you know what I'm talking about spiritually. Unless God brings life by his spirit, we are all dead. Preach to the bones. Pray for the wind. The spirit will blow and new life will be brought. Hear the dead, hear the voice of the Son of God and his messengers and those that here do live. Here he gives sight to those that are born blind. It is the effect of the gospel preached to open the eyes of sinners and to turn them from darkness to light. Here he cures diseased souls with a word which are otherwise incurable by the utmost help of men and angels. Here he vanquishes the powers of darkness. Here he makes old things pass away and all things become new. Here, the ordinary preaching of the gospel, the observance of the sacraments, the truth of God proclaimed among Christians who love one another. Let me end with a story about my Aunt Dee Dee, my Aunt Diane. My Aunt Diane, so she was my godmother, not literally my biological aunt. She was my mom's best friend. She's actually responsible for um, introducing, you know, like she played matchmaker for me and Wendy. <laughs> That's a whole other story. It's amazing. It's pretty cool. But my Aunt Dee Dee was also a Christian, is also a Christian. She's still with us. And she was the hound of heaven when it came to trying to get us to church. So Wendy and I start dating. I wasn't following the Lord. She wasn't following the Lord. We were both starting to think, if there's a God, he's not happy with us. But we weren't following the Lord yet. And week after week, Aunt Dee Dee would say, you guys should come to church with me this Sunday. And we always had an excuse not to go. Nah, no, nah, we're not going to go. Three months, three months every week, you guys should come to church with me this Sunday. And finally, we just relented. 
And we went. Now, God, in his grace, used that first Sunday in a very profound way. Not that that Sunday we confessed our sin and we believed. It was the beginning of a process that over the course of about a year resulted in Wendy and I becoming believers a month before we got married. Just in the nick of time. (laughs) But honestly, God used a faithful saint Someone who knew us and loved us, who wouldn't leave us alone until we finally relented and said, okay, we'll go. And God met us there. Let me tell you another story real quick. I know it's time to go. I want to tell you the story real quick about a friend of a friend who invited a friend to church. You tracking with me on that? So a friend of mine who has a friend who invited a friend to church. Here's the story. That friend who was invited to church was a non-Christian. The friend who invited him had such high hopes. I hope that whatever the pastor's preaching on is really evangelistic this Sunday. You know, I hope the worship is good. I hope this, that, and the other thing. And he brings his friend, his non-Christian friend, to church. His friend comes, and they sit down, and the pastor opens up his Bible and starts preaching from Genesis 5, I think it was, where all you have is a history, a genealogy of people who had children and then died. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and then so-and-so died. So-and-so begat so-and-so and lived X number of years and then died. And then on and on and on. And that was it. And the, the Christian friend who invited the non-Christian friend was just thinking, hopefully I can get him back another Sunday. And at the end of the service, the, the pastor said, you know, if you'd like to ask any questions about what I preach today, if you're, you know, maybe interested in learning more about the relationship with the Lord, please come hang out with me after the service is over. I'll be up front. And as soon as the service ended, this non-Christian friend stood up and walked forward. <laughs> and the Christian friend who invited him was like, how in the world could that possibly have happened? And afterwards, he said to him, what, why, when, how? And his non-Christian friend said, you know what, I, I really realized for the first time, I'm going to die. God used it. God uses ordinary means to do extraordinary things, to rescue people from their sin. He did it for you. He may do it for those you know and love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would give us courage. Lord, there are all manner of reasons why we hesitate when it comes to inviting a friend or a coworker or a neighbor or a family member to church. And Lord, so much of that has to do at the end of the day just with our anxiety and our fear about what they will think about us. And, and Lord, there's with that legitimate perhaps concern that in the asking will push them further away. Lord, would you help us to be willing to take risks to offer invitations, to risk looking foolish. Lord, we know that your servant Paul had no problem looking foolish in Corinth. Lord, make us willing to to follow in his footsteps in that way. Lord Jesus, you came not seeking to impress, but seeking to serve. Lord, help us to be willing to follow you in your footsteps as well. Lord, help us to do this as the fruit of a genuine, heartfelt pursuit of love that flows from a deepening reality that we love because you have loved us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.